On this week's episode of Riding the 3x3, Patrick Fetch and I discuss all things MLB return. How will things look? How will pitchers be used? How will the DH look in the National League? We go into the nuts and bolts of everything surrounding the 60-game season before diving into Jamal Adams' trade request from the New York Jets in lane number two. And we close out the show with another Riding the 3x3 list, this time our favorite swings in MLB history might be pretty easy to choose who's going to be number one. All that coming up on this week's episode of Riding the 3x3. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to this great medium known as podcasts. And go ahead and give us a little five-star review, a little uh, little love for the Riding the 3x3 community. We always love to see it. Let's get right in to lane number one. Rolling into lane number one on this week's edition of Riding the 3x3. I'm, of course, your host, Russ Heltman, joined by Mr. Patrick Fetch. Pat, we finally got to see each other in person for the first time in like two, three years. I was back in the natty over the past couple weeks. It's good times, my man. We hit the links. Welcome back to the program. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be back. And let me tell the people, my nine iron and I were having a great day on the links (laughs) when we got to see each other. I was killing it on those par threes. Your swing wasn't looking too bad either. You're, you're, you're safe down the green, but you were hitting the ball straight all day. Oh, yeah. It was it was a solid ball striking day. Of course, uh, the lips of the cup were not very, very pleasant to me mm. on the on that afternoon. Pat, you were firsthand ex- experience of that. But Patty par five or Patty par threes over here. Excuse me. Yeah, you go. Was, uh, was out there throwing darts on all those uh, all those small holes. A lot of fun playing Avon Hills there in Cincinnati. Good times all the way around. And Pat, we're hopefully going to get into some great times with the boys of summer here very soon fingers crossed we finally have a plan in place i know it's been a little bit since our last show the owners the players nothing was reconciled really at all but it didn't matter because we're going to get 60 games pat that's really what they were going to probably play in, in in the first place and besides playoff expansion we're pretty much going to get what they were they were talking about 60 game season in the uh discussions in the the uh, what am I looking for? The negotiations that that went down uh, back in March. They agreed to that plan that they set on March 26 to pay the full prorated salaries over a 60 game schedule, 40 games between members of the divisions, and then 20 games against the opposing division in the other league. So, for example, the NL Central would play, the Reds would play 40 games against the NL Central teams, and then they would play 20 against the AL Central teams. And Pat, we're going to have a full DH across the board. Also a little bit of a uh, extra innings rule wrinkle with the additional runner being added on second base to start the top of each inning in extra innings. So a lot of stuff moving around for MLB. They're trying to get players in spring training camps at their prospective home ballparks. By July 1st, a week from today, Wednesday night, kind of tentative on whether or not that's really going to happen, seeing as half the states across the country are seeing surges in the coronavirus, and we just had the highest number of positive tests in a single day during this entire pandemic. So once again, stay vigilant, people. Want to make sure that we're doing all we can to make sure we can get sports back. But Pat, we have a plan in place. It seems like we're going to get the season rolling and the NBA, along with Major League Baseball, are aiming for a late July return? I'm very conflicted, Russ. Very conflicted. On, I just, 
like you just said, what we just saw about the virus and everything, I'm very uncertain what I'm seeing from baseball. I don't really believe it yet. I think you texted me as soon as the news came out, and I was like, let's let's not count our chickens yet. Let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. Rainy day fetch. Just text me am, right I back am. with the dagger. I'm going to be the pessimist today. I am definitely, definitely not confident in anything. Like The only thing that Major League Baseball showed me over the last few weeks since last time we talked is that they're just as incompetent as they were before. You know, you know what we didn't do last week is have a pod talking about the MLB draft. Because why would we? Even though it was quite literally the only thing on TV as far as sports, <laughs> we still didn't talk about it. It was literally the only sports on, and we still couldn't be bothered. So Major League Baseball and its inability to brand itself and the inability of it to be able to sell its own sport and own game, it is absolutely infuriating as a fan. And like you said, the owners and players really haven't reconciled much of anything at this point. Both of the sides really just agree that they want to make some money and play some baseball. But with that being said, I just don't have any confidence that as soon as there's some bad tests here, as soon as one team has an outbreak, as soon as one star player bows out, that starts a domino effect. I'm just not certain. But I do think that them playing in their home ballpark is going to work out in their favor. I think more players will definitely uh, option to play versus being you know, thrown in some bubble in the middle of the swamp, Florida. I'm mm-hmm. not confident, though. But that being said, I am I am happy, right? Like as a fan, I'm getting what I want. I'm getting baseball. I'm getting, you know, baseball. They're gonna try. They're at least yeah, gonna, they're try. gonna try. And that's all you can really ask from at this point. They're at least going to try to give the fans what they want. They're gonna give the players an opportunity to market themselves and do everything that they tell them to do. So at least as fans, we are getting something. We are getting that bone. We're getting taken for the walk in the dog park. It was a beautiful day. We'll see what happens. We'll see how it goes. I'm not confident, though, Russ. Is there anything that you can say to maybe to maybe ease my worries, my quarrels? I don't have anything off the top of my head, seeing as just a few days ago when there were those outbreaks, namely with the Philadelphia Phillies down in Florida, the Major League Baseball, uh, the, the, the organization itself came out and said, yeah, we're going to go ahead and shut down spring training um, and uh, formulate some serious protocols on what to do with with testing and getting these spring training operations ramped back up again versus on the flip side of that, you have the NBA coming out with a fully comprehensive 113 page report going all the way down to the throwing away of playing cards after using them more than one yeah. time. They were that detailed versus the MLB. Uh, it seems like they're, I actually tweeted this a couple months back shooting from the hip a lot lately. So I'm a, I am less confident in the MLB's plan to play games and finish a season than I am with the NBA because the NBA has that ability and can control a lot more factors if they're able to control any factors within that bubble system they're creating in Orlando. Where ways with the MLB, yeah, it's only 60 games, obviously much less than 162, much less travel. Yes, they're only playing their division and the opposing league's division, so you're, you're limiting travel across the country. But still, I mean you're still taking you're still creating super carriers for the virus if these players end up do contracting it and they do end up taking it and spreading it <clears throat> on the road. So regardless of all that, Pat, honestly, man, I'm just so tired of talking about what like what the virus is gonna do, like what's gonna happen. We don't know. <laughs> we don't know what's gonna the virus is gonna do. Let's just talk baseball. Let's talk some we haven't talked anything 
nothing nuts and bolts baseball really since the first pod we did. And it's really infuriating because this entire time we should have been talking about the Reds going on some winning streaks, maybe Eugenio Suarez uh, competing with uh, with the rest of the third base crew to lead them in home runs again, all that good stuff. We haven't gotten to talk any of that. So let's break down a little bit of the 60 games, what it. might happen. Pat, who do you think, or not who do you think, what win number, win total do you think will be leading the league this year? I'm going to go out, I'm going to throw out, I think 43 wins will be the high mark, 43 to 45. And then I think 31 to 33 is going to be the low mark for the last team of the playoffs. What do you think? Very fun. I, I don't know if the low mark, I think, is is very much up for debate because I think it's going to be closer to 500 than in a normal year. Right. Definitely. But see, I don't know. I don't know if there's going to be clusters in the middle, if there's going to be clusters at the top and bottom, it'll be interesting to see how bad the bad teams are and how good the good teams are. So I think that is a very fun question of how, what the high win total would be. I have a hard time seeing a team going better than 45 and 14. I think if you go better than 45 and 14, that is an absolutely incredible, heroic 60-game stretch, obviously. Mm-hmm. So that would be very, very interesting to see a team do that. I would, So I'd have to say 43 sounds like a perfect number. I will go over 40. I will bet over 40 wins for the top mark. I don't know if I could go over 45. I think that's a little steep. Now, for... For the low in the playoffs, I think you could see a couple teams under 500 get in. Hmm. I, I don't know, I don't know how dramatic the, the bad teams are going to be, or you know how good the good teams are going to be. Because I mean, in a, in reality, there is you know four or five teams that rosters are just so much better than the rest of the field. Uh, those teams being the Dodgers, the Yankees. And especially um, with the DH across the leagues, the Dodgers, man, with the ability to use that DH, oh, my Lord. So, yeah, I I don't know. I can see them getting in that 40s mark, but I'm not sure how bad the bad teams are going to be. How bad are the Pirates going to be? How bad will, you know, how bad will the Rockies be? And it'll also be interesting to see those middling teams. I like our favorite division, our NL Central. I think I saw the betting odds. Uh, all four of the top teams outside the Pirates are all at plus 2,500. That's wow. a very, very interesting. It's just a toss-up, especially because it was already basically a toss-up in the heightened sample size of 162 games. But when you have the dart throw of a 60-game sprint, you almost have no <clears throat> real way to handicap that jam cluster of a division. For some context, Pat, uh, uh, ESPN.com came out and they did the uh, did some research over 50 game stretches in the past three seasons. Best one was the Dodgers 860 winning percentage stretch over 50 games in 2017. They went 43 and seven. And then the Indians in that same year went 42 and eight over a 50 game stretch. So I think I 45 that. would be really crazy good over 60 games, but then again, I mean, you've seen this, like, like they just did it 50 games, 10 less games. They still notch 40 wins. So I think we will, I think we're both in agreement right there. It's most likely we're going to see something like 41, 42, any, what, uh, anything else intrigue you about this whole situation, Pat, in terms of the on field play? What, what about the rule change with the runner on second, the whole DH thing? Let's, let's start with the runner on second and then we'll move to the DH kind of, kind of pick around who might benefit the most from that rule being expanded to the National League. Runner on second being now allowed 
to uh, to be in- instituted immediately off the jump in the beginning of extra innings. This has been in play in the minor league levels for the past three years, I believe, something like that. And I think this is a great, great move by Major League Baseball, especially this season, Pat, with this 60 games, truncated schedule. You might as well just give it a shot. And in the end, people want to watch baseball, but nobody wants to watch a 14-inning game at 2 in the morning. Sorry. I find it to be – I know, I agree. I find it to be a very gimmicky rule, but it makes all too much sense, especially in this shortened season when they're trying to jam all these games in. It, it, in in a full season, I don't know how on, how on board I would be. Mm-hmm. But that being said, right, like those – I know those games. Those games I'm watching the Reds in the 12th inning and, you know, no one else off the bench. We've got arms, tired arms in the bullpen. You, you're hoping this one guy can stretch it out. You just feel like it's inevitable. This game is going to 18. There's going to be a lucky run. There's no momentum. The game is just dead. The announcers are dead. Everyone's left the stadium. And so especially with no one in the stadium at that point. Right. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I don't hate the rule, especially this year. Um, it'll be interesting to see how how effective it, it is. But I don't think – and I think that is true. Without fans, I don't think you're going to get the full, the full feel of how that rule would play out in a normalized season. Exactly. And – when I first heard of it, I was like, oh, no, what is this? Is a is a runner that goes on second, are they going to get an RBI? Are they going to get a run scored if they end up right. getting batted in? Are they going to get an RBI? Is the batter who bats him in, are they going to get an RBI? Does the pitcher get an earned run? None of that. It's just going to be counted as an error across the board if the runner does end up scoring from second base. So they kind of clean that up pretty quickly with that rule change. Now, the DH, Pat. I think this benefits, obviously, we got rolling looking at the National League here because it's been in the American League for, I think, almost half a century now. It's going on that long. And for the teams at the top, especially the Dodgers, you're looking at teams like our Cincinnati Reds, the Chicago Cubs are up there, the Cardinals, these teams that are so depth proven. They have such deep, deep rosters, especially in the outfield for teams like our Reds and the LA Dodgers that they can now just take one player out of that log jam and immediately slot the best bat in that log jam to the DH spot every day. I I think it's very exciting. I think it's inevitable that it's coming to the national league and, and I think teams have been prepared for it. I mean, if you look at the Dodgers roster, obviously they're built for a world series. So they're built for that DH. They know they're going to need it. But I think, you know, the Reds are sort of in a similar way. They're built to have a DH in that lineup. So I think it's been really interesting. I think teams either more consciously or almost unconsciously have been working towards constructing their rosters for this. And so it'll be really fun to see how these National League managers go about it. And I think what's more the more pressing, I think, side of this is that the three batter pitching rule, the three batter minimum. And I mm, think that's mm. going to mess some teams up real bad. There's going to be some teams that, that are just going to be like intentionally walking three strike guys just to get another pitcher in and out of there or something like that. I think you're going to see some crazy, crazy things with that role in order to in sort of in, in order to try to maneuver their way around it. And I think that would be very fun. Very interesting. Oh, yeah. I'm with you on that one. hundred percent. And and sticking on this DH topic, Pat, it, 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 it really directly helps every single team in that log jam currently from the NL central. Yeah, it'll be fun. Um, I don't, I kind of hate it still though. Like I'm so conditioned to watching national league baseball. I'm so conditioned to, to that pitching spot coming up in the order, to thinking about it, to thinking through 
But then again, I, I think about how many innings it's like ruined for me as a baseball fan when I'm when I'm watching this game and I just know that there's a dead spot in the roster in the lineup or with two outs you get in that bottom part of the the order. Well, you're just screwed. There's nothing you really look forward to. So well, and the fact different. that you avoid injury now if you're a pitcher too, which True. is another thing. You how it's not doesn't happen often, obviously, but the few times where one of your where you got a star pitcher or star reliever. Not necessarily a reliever, obviously, because they'd probably be uh, be subbed out for at that point. But who, who, whatever situation calls for, you go up to bat, you're running down the base path, you tear a muscle in your leg or something, something freak like that happens. So it's all, I think, very progressive. It's the way to move. It's going to make the game more fun. It's going to create more runs, and it's going to give more live bats the opportunity to uh, to entertain the fans. And that's what the name of the game is at the end. Pat, wrapping up this baseball topic and sticking in with more nuts and bolts talk as we close out lane one, I'm really intrigued to see what these pitching rotations look like, what the the reliever innings look like. How many starters are we going to see in a game? Could we see a three-inning start from one ace pitcher, and then you go to your second man for the next three innings, and you do a kind of committee? I think there's going to be a lot of experimentation and the manager in the analytics departments that can nail those experiments quicker and more efficiently are probably going to be the ones with the biggest edge. And that's why I think in this 60-game sprint, there's a very likely chance, especially with how crazy and, and wonky baseball can be, that we could have a very surprised champion come out of the woodwork. Definitely. I think that whole idea of like an opener is going to be massive. And mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. with the, the lack of spring training and the lack of time that these pitchers have had to get ready. I think managers are going to be extremely cautious and it's, and because they're going to have expanded rosters, I believe. Right. I think yes, the whole yeah. idea of that they're, they're going to want to get as many arms in there, as many live arms, ready arms as they possibly can. So I fully expect there to be a, an annoying amount of pitching changes an annoying amount of moves. And I don't think starters can expect to go past the fifth, sixth inning and a lot of their starts. MLB is back, hoping for a potential return, fingers crossed, Pat, that we can get opening day on July 24th with some NBA basketball tipping off a week later in Orlando. We'll be following all of that here on Riding the 3x3 over the next couple weeks. And moving into lane number two, a trade demand that Pat and I have been following very closely and one that could directly impact the uh, division where we call home, our favorite teams, the Steelers and the Bengals, the AFC North Baltimore Ravens are one of the seven teams that all pro safety Jamal Adams, just 25 years of age. He is one of the best safeties in all football, arguably the number one free safety, hard hitting type of player at his position. He has demanded a trade from the New York Jets, not happy with the uh, brass in the Big Apple, wants to be the highest paid safety in the NFL, despite having two years left on his rookie deal that he signed back after the draft in 2017. Pat, he wants to go to, get this, Pat, check out these teams he wants to go to. The Ravens, (laughs) the Cowboys, the Texans, the Chiefs, the Eagles, the 49ers, and the Seahawks. So essentially, Interesting he wants list. to go to almost every team that made the playoffs last year. <laughs> it's like, oh, really? Yeah, you want yeah. to go to the good teams, Jamal? Really? Is that what you want to do? A very, a very shocking list on on the part of Jamal Adams. And I don't necessarily want to see him go to a single one of the, those teams. Hey, not, as far as not, I understand, not the Ravens. Yeah. Please, not the Ravens. Can you imagine I mean, him and Earl Thomas, Pat? Are you kidding me? It'd be terrifying. It'd be terrifying. Or could you imagine him and the Honey Badger on the Chiefs? 
Dude, him on the Chiefs, you might as well. They're talking about not playing the season. There you go. You got your yeah, champ right there. Yeah. Right. Just a joke, obviously a joke. We want to see NFL football, but man, that team would be a wagon with uh, with Jamal Adams back there. Absolutely, absolutely. Any of those teams would be terrifying with Jamal Adams, and you can't be shocked that he's upset with Adam Gase and the Jets brass. Like, can you be? I mean, they're just just the worst franchise in in sports. It seems like they really just don't know what's going on over there. I'm torn on the situation, Pat, because you look at Jamal Adams, and if you're if you don't watch on Sundays, you just look at the the stats, the raw counting numbers. You know, 61 tackles, two forced fumbles, an interception, seven passes defended in 2019. Pretty ho hum. Not even in the in the top 30 of any of those statistics. But then you look at what he actually does on the field and in the tape, and what he does to affect each and every snap. The guy played 75 plus snaps at edge defender last year. He moves all around the defense. He's like he's like a Derwin James essentially. He's the he's the quote unquote queen on the chessboard that you can move and have accomplish whatever you want defensively at all times. He's the edge setter on that defense. And he also wants to be paid accordingly. He's the 25th highest paid safety in the NFL. And I'd say he's about 24 spots underpaid in terms of his value in in the National Football League. But the problem, Pat, is is he wants to be the highest paid player at his position, a position in the NFL, which is, I'd say, on the bottom tier. Would you agree with me there in terms of importance? I would disagree with you. You think safety is very important? I think safety, when you look at outside linebacker, defensive end, defensive lineman, cornerback, I got safety fifth on that list. But I think safety is what turns your defense into a Super Bowl winning defense. You very do, rarely you have experienced that firsthand with one, uh, very, one yeah. Troy Polamalu, and, and watching the difference that Minka Fitzpatrick made in his addition. Mm-hmm. If you think about the past Super Bowl champions, none of them are winning without without a safety that at least leads that defense. Whether it's McCourty's in you know New England, whether it was the Honey Badger with the Chiefs. Um, whether it's Malcolm Jenkins with the Eagles, right? Okay. Maybe they're not the number one safety right, in football, but they are all there and they all absolutely change that defense. And they turn those, they turn those edge rushers into the elite edge rushers that can get forced fumbles. They turn those safeties into the, or those corners into the elite corners. They do the, the, the heavy work for those linebackers. So no, I would just, I would disagree in that. So I do think Jamal Adams going to the right team um, as in the Cowboys could definitely alter just the overall psyche and the overall look of the Cowboys. Absolutely. The problem, Pat, is though, I, I, and and I do. Those are great. That is a great point you made there. They they do create that tone. They set that edge in terms of mentality, along with great play, which is something that Adams has has consistently proven with the Jets over these first few years of his career. But he's still got two years left on his deal, man. Like. You signed a rookie contract, and you you're a first round pick, yeah, a top I mean, pick. Like you get, I get that all these guys just get using paid. his I leverage and that, yeah, exactly. And and I get that he doesn't like the the Jets organization now. He probably does have issues with Adam Gase. I don't know if they, I don't know what they would be details directly, but if you're trying to get traded and also get paid to be the number one player at your position, which right now would be a crisp. million if you were to eclipse Eddie Jackson of the Chicago Bears. 
on top of what the team you would be signing with would have to give up to acquire you. I just don't see the I don't see any team doing that, Pat. Look at what just happened to the LA to the LA Rams. They sign they trade for Jalen Ramsey, they give up two first round picks, and now they have to sign him to a full max deal to be the highest paid player at his position because he holds all the cards and they are going to basically be playing be paying almost three quarters of their cap to about three to four players in Jared Goff, Aaron Donald, and Jalen Ramsey. It's just not sustainable, especially when we are dealing with a pandemic that could see the salary cap of the NFL drop by anywhere they're saying from 20 million to upwards of 30 to 40 million dollars just next year alone, let let alone if they were to spread out the actual damage over three to four years. I agree with you in the sense that I don't know how much sense it, how much total sense it makes for a team to go out and give up that capital for him. Um, but on the other side, it's just a story of the Jets, right? How frustrating it's it true. must be. The writing, the writing was on the wall for this. Like Jamal Adams was going to get paid. He was going to become you know, the center focus of that team and that defense, or he was going to force his way out. He wasn't going to be a part of a middling team. But see, no he future can't and, uh, force his way out. That's the problem for Jamal Adams. If he doesn't play this year, then guess what? He's still got two years left on his deal. And if he doesn't play next year, he's still got two years left on the deal. It's the problem that Ezekiel Elliott faced that Jerry Jones didn't eventually force him to deal with is the fact that if you don't show up for camp and you don't show up on Sundays – through, I think, a half of the season, you don't accrue a season towards your contract. So, so I, do, I do disagree. So he has, he, he, I don't think he has a lot of leverage here. I do think he does because I think, one, he has two years on his deal. So there's going to be a team that sees that as that value. They're gonna, there's going to be a team that sees that two-year window that they have, and they're going to go get him. They're, it's just – and I, he played with somebody in Le'Veon Bell who, who played this card as a free agent without a team. You really, you know, when he played for the, when he sat out with the Steelers, like that was him not under contract, just refusing a franchise tag. I mean, all in all, it did work out pretty well for him. He was able to take the year off, still got however million dollars guaranteed. So I don't see, I don't think 50, that he missed out on 15 million, Pat. He's and, never had 15 million back. You're right. But I don't think that these players see it that in that same vein. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? He's earning that. He would have earned that $15 million with 450 carries up the gut that season with Pittsburgh, right? Like, yeah. I think it's but all you're, an opportunity you're, cost. You're basing this season, point so. on the fact that he still has two years left on his deal, but a team – like this is the issue that the team acquiring him would face is they would be forced to pay him that number one salary slot money – because they've already shown how much they value him by giving up so much draft capital, i.e. the two first-round picks for Jalen Ramsey, they now have to pay him, or else they're just going to let, or they're just going to let Ramsey walk, or they're going to franchise tag him, which is stupider than paying him. So you 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 wouldn't take Jamal Adams' bluff if you're one of these contending teams, say the Cowboys. And you acquire him without giving him an extension, you're not going to call his bluff to play for you. Now, yourself. see, that's some galaxy brain stuff, Pat, and I, and I like that's the, what I, I like the way you're thinking. That's a little bit I of some evil thinking right there. I think it's the Jets. He doesn't want to play in New York, so hmm. I I'm going to call his bluff and say if he finds his way in Baltimore, he's definitely putting on that helmet week one, no matter if he has an extension or not. This tells is his, I think uh, this is more tells his agents to call off the dogs a little bit and uh, say uh, right. We're going to go uh, go eat some crab cake and, and hang out a little bit on the shores of Baltimore. Exactly, exactly. And, hey, maybe if he's down in Texas, that no-income tax 
maybe he can take a couple million dollars off that deal versus being in New York. Pat, why aren't you advising Jamal Adams? I think you should do this podcast. I like I like that point you make right there, and it's going to be very interesting to see how the uh, Jamal Adams saga plays out. That was uh, definitely something on our radar the past few uh, few days, and it's uh, going to be on the Jets' radar, obviously, until uh, until they get players back in camp. We'll keep an eye on if Jamal Adams is one of those players. I would not bank on him being uh, wherever the Jets do uh, end up suiting up come the end of july lane number three pat this is a fun little topic another list that we're doing on riding the three by three with the mlb coming back and of course the it was the ken this past sunday yeah ken griffey jr documentary this past sunday on mlb network i need to find a way to access that video that video footage i need to find a way to watch this documentary somehow because i don't have mlb network but we wanted to do the we wanted to list our top three favorite swings that we've seen in MLB history. I'll open the floor to you, my man. I'm first. You're always making me go first. All right, I'll go right. first. I'll go first. I'll, I'll go, go first. first. I'll go first. I'll go first. I'll go first. I'll go first. All right. <laughs> oh, yeah. my, my, favorite, my favorites, I'm going to go. So making this list, like if you're saying the favorite swings, the greatest swings of all time, it's tough. It's tough because you lefties, the lefty swing is so beautiful. So with that being mm-hmm. said, I got to go with the righty to start my list off. Because they're so far and so few in between. And my favorite right-handed swing, the most beautiful right-hand swing of all time, is none other than Manny Ramirez. Just Manny being Manny. That high leg kick, the way he put his shoulder down on that ball, the follow-through, and just the aggressiveness that he swung in. And especially when he put that ball deep. When he put that ball deep, pulled it off the... Oh, just absolutely beautiful. I'm going to get Manny Ramirez my first selection. Great minds think alike, Pat. He was also on my list, so I'll list him off along with you. 555 dingers, 19-year career. I just, I always associate the old ESPN Sports Center like mid-2000s graphics package with Manny Ramirez. Yeah. Because it seemed like there was always a trade rumor or Manny doing something crazy or something going on where one of the anchors was just uh, using those graphics to display it. And it was usually followed by a highlight of Manny hitting a dinger. One of those 555 times, 12-time All-Star, 29 postseason home runs. And uh, he had a very illustrious career with the Indians, Red Sox, and Dodgers. Won World Series MVP in 04. Manny is a uh, a true beaut, and that swing is uh, something to behold. Number two for me, Pat, is going to be Chipper Jones, the king of switch Chipper. hitters himself. 468 dingers. He is uh, the principal owner of the New York Mets, some might say. He is the 1999 National League MVP, eight-time All-Star. He was just so mechanically sound, and the ability to do it from both sides of the plate has always just astounded me, Pat. The ability to not only be able to hit a baseball just from me pitching it to you with both hands and both sides of your body, but to do it with MLB pitching hitting 361 homers with his left-handed swing and 107 from the right side. Something to behold, man. That's that's uh, something that I I don't think we're going to see for a very long time. Absolutely beautiful. I feel like we've lost the art of a good switch hitter yeah. in recent years. Am I wrong there? Maybe I, I'm just I'm missing you. a couple of my- And Chipper Jones, he was one of those last true pure batting average type of guys. I think he was oh, the yeah. last guy to hit over 400 over a 50 game stretch. I think 10 or 12 years ago. Beautiful. 
Beautiful. I love that selection. Chipper was not on my list, but I will I will respect this selection. It's good. My you gotta have two, some variety. I like it. Give it yeah, my give number, me number two, two. What do you got? Could easily be my number one. But my number two is Robbie Cano. Robinson Cano. The beautiful left-handed swing. He has the type of swing that it doesn't even look real. Like I feel I swear to God, he's guessing where that ball is up there. It's too natural. The flow is too even. It's too steady. And that that home run derby of him just sending balls into the moon it was quite quite the scene. One of the most beautiful rounds of just baseball, right? That is that is the essence of hitting a ball with a bat in the most beautiful, elegant way possible. My number two is Gabby Robinson Cano. Someone I feel like he gets left off these lists more than he should. I think he's pretty criminally underrated, Pat. He's a am I wrong? He's part of the four hundred club. I know. He, yeah, I just he's think a hall he's, of famer. I just think he's kind of gets lumped in with those guys that just went for the money and and just people kind of lumped them in as caring more about money than the game. When in reality, I mean, Robinson Cano is is one of the greatest, greatest players to ever play the game, I would say. So I, that's a good he's pick. A 300, 324 home runs is uh, is the number for Robinson Cano, member of the uh, New York Mets. So like I like that pick, Pat. What do we got for number one? I think everybody knows what we're going to pick here. It's the kid. 630 home runs for one Mr. Ken Griffey Jr. He's number one on my list. The most beautiful swing you'll ever see on a baseball field. I think it was crafted by the Lord above himself. I don't really have much else to say, Pat. 10 gold glove awards, 630 home runs, like I mentioned. Just one of the greatest players of all time. Grew up and grew to fame in the steroid era has been widely acclaimed for being clean during that time, was a part of that wild summer with the uh, 1998 uh, summer with Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa, kind of fizzled out the end, but uh, he didn't have the juice helping him. So we'll, uh, he's my true home run king, to be honest, in that race. And he's the king of all uh, swings, Pat. The best and prettiest swing I've ever seen in my entire life goes to Ken Griffey Jr., you are correct in that selection. I, that's the only right answer in this in this list. Give me honorable mentions. Yeah, also I'll say my number one. I'll just slot in a new number one for myself. Okay. I'm going Eric the Red, Eric Davis. Ooh. Now Eric Davis had one of the more unique swings in, in baseball history. It's it's a lost swing that will never be repeated. But with the aggressiveness that he attacked the ball, it was a little bit nonchalant up there. He just held the bat to the side. But the way that he just attacked baseballs, it was the ball came off his bat 110 miles an hour and not not one mile per hour less ever. He absolutely blistered baseballs. And it's a, it's a sight to behold when he really gets a hold of one. So go out there, watch yourself some Eric Davis highlights tonight and, and really just revel in the power that he had. Eric Davis, man, one of the greatest hitter runner base runner combo players Oh, of yeah. all time. That dude was an absolute stud, was one of the, uh, not one of the last, but one of the true great base runners of all time. Like, it's, it's that's another one of those lost arts, like Pat, is, is base running like that and be the ability to steal bases like Eric Davis could. Yeah, one of the most athletic baseball players in Major League Baseball history. I mean, he could have played any sport he set his mind to. He'd have been an Olympian. He'd have been an NFL running back. He could have done it all. They just don't make him like that anymore. Gotta love it, Pat. He is the Not only player to hit 20 home runs and steal 20 bases in the first 60 games of a season. How about that? A little timely Insane. reference for this upcoming 60-game sprint. Did that back in 1980. 
seven. That wraps it up, Pat. This week's episode of the Riding the Three by Three. Want to thank Mister Fetch very much for joining the program. We will be back. It was a fun one next week. Oh yeah, I'll always love doing it, my man. And want to wish everybody a beautiful, healthy, happy weekend. Stay vigilant out there, people. Coronavirus is still out there with us. Take care of your fellow man, and uh, we'll hopefully get some of these sports back in America very soon. Because the world's they're playing sports. We got to get catch up with them. We'll see you next week on Riding the Three by Three.